Well, this morning, we are going to finish the book of Esther. Um, So please have your Bibles open. Uh, We've got three chapters to get through this morning. Now, the last one is only about three verses, so we'll, we'll do that, and it's a, it's a big story. Um, but uh, let, me, let me pray again as we are about to jump in to the text, but I did want you to, to open your Bibles up to Esther and prepare your hearts for that. So, Father, as we come before your Word, Lord, we do ask that you would open our eyes to see it, Lord, without your, uh, the, the illuminating work of your Spirit, um, this will fall on deaf ears, and I pray that it does not. I pray that you would Help us to wrap this book up. Thanks for the time that we've had in it. Um, it's all part of your holy and inspired word, uh, your letter to us, uh, to guide and to direct us and to show us more of Christ and to teach us to trust and to rest in you. And so, Lord, open our eyes today to behold wonderful things from your word. In Christ's name, amen. So in the evening, I have uh, been very slowly reading through um, John Newton's Cardiphonia um, before bed, and so that only happens a few nights every now and then. Uh, And earlier this past week, this was part of what I read in in the latest letter that I read. He said, I have lately read Robertson's History of Charles V, which like most other histories, I consider as a comment upon those passages of Scripture which teach us the depravity of man, the deceitfulness of the heart, the ruinous effects of sin, and the powerful, though secret, rule of divine providence, moving, directing, controlling the designs and actions of men with an unerring hand to the accomplishment of his own purposes, both of mercy and judgment. Now, as I read that, I thought, how apropos and, and, and appropriate to what we've been looking at in Esther. And then he goes on to say this. He says, without the clue and the light which the Word of God affords, the history of mankind of any, of every age, only presents to view a labyrinth and a chaos, a detail of wickedness and misery to make us tremble, and a confused jumble of interfering incidents, as destitute of stability, connection, or order as the clouds which fly over our heads. If we look at this world without the, the, the lens of, of God, without an eye to God and His work, it is chaos. That's what we will think. Just, just watch the news or read history. It's depressing. It can be confusing, and it would certainly be downright frustrating without a belief and an understanding of God and His role and activity in this world. And even when we have an eye to God, it can be extremely frustrating as we look at this world. But this morning, we finish this book that is filled with chaos and difficult moments. And it's also one that, as we have seen, makes no explicit mention of God. Yet on every single page, it is filled with His hand. It is filled with His work. This book has, I think, been very instructive. It's helped us to see the reality of God's hand of providence. And so, as we come to the end, the tension, the uncertainty that we so often felt in this book is it's mostly gone. There's still some, but it's not to the same degree that we've felt before. So what I want us to do is just jump in and see how this story wraps up and then how it calls us as a people to be those who celebrate God's work and His hand in all of life. So look at chapter 8, starting in verse 1. 
On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told what he was to her, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai and Esther. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So this chapter picks up right where it left off with finalizing some of the reversal that we've seen. Haman has been executed. His possessions, his house has been given to Esther, and then she in turn gave it to Mordecai. The signet ring that Haman had possessed, uh, signifying his, his status in the empire, has now been given to Mordecai. So you see this reversal because now this, this Jewish man who, in a sense, caused most of this problem is now almost unrivaled in the kingdom of Persia. The reversal is almost complete, but the problem isn't over yet, is it? There's still business left to be done, and it's extremely pressing business. Look at verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, certainly some time, a little bit of time at least, has passed, um, and, and Esther now takes up the cause of her people. She's identified herself with the people um, before the king, and now she really takes up the cause. She had requested the lives of her people. Remember when she said, my wish is for my life and my request is for my people. But then I think the king was a little preoccupied with everything that happened with Haman and how he was going to get out of the little pickle he was in himself. And so now she comes back before the king. She falls before him, weeping and pleading. And the king holds out the golden scepter. This is not in the same sense that it was before, but this is more to say, Esther, rise and tell me. Tell me what's on your heart and on your mind. And so she again speaks with great skill, knowing the gravity of the situation. She begins with four clauses. And see how they pile up. She says, if it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, if the thing seems right before his eyes, if I am pleasing in his eyes. She lays out, she lays the groundwork. She's very careful because what she is about to ask is that an irrevocable edict be revoked. That's a a rather large ask. But you know what? She cannot bear to see her people condemned by this descent. So she comes before the king. She's in utter solidarity with her people, with the people of God. And, And the change we have seen in Esther The fortitude we have seen in her in these last few chapters has been remarkable. Her empathy with the suffering of others, even though she would presumably be safe in the palace. 
It's wonderful to see that she's willing to continue to risk much to identify with her people. Now, the king responds to her actually quite favorably, but it's an impossible thing that she asks. He cannot revoke an irrevocable edict. So he, in essence, says to them, hey, here's what you can do. You can write whatever you want to write as long as it doesn't revoke what I already wrote. Okay, so if you can, if you can figure out a way to finagle this whole thing and, and, and work out uh, happiness for the Jews, go for it. You just can't contradict or revoke what I've already written. So at that point in time, you know, they, they, I just picture them calling these scribes and, and others, and they're just like, write like the wind, okay? Just like the wind, write. And here's, here's the words, like, write. Come on, quickly, write everything out. So the scribes, they come together, and, and they, they send throughout the empire, just like the original edict, to all 127 provinces, to everyone, they send the, 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 the notice with great haste. And look at verse 11 then. The notice, it says, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So if you think back to the original edict, you can actually see the reflection. It's, it's almost a mere reflection of what the original one was. One, he starts off, he says, they have the right to destroy, to kill, to annihilate. That was the exact language of Haman's edict. And the Jews could do more than merely defend themselves, to, to ward off an attack. But, but the point is that they could not just kill indiscriminately. They couldn't just, you know, their, their neighbor defrauded them something. That doesn't give them carte blanche to go after them. They have to respond to those who come after them. This was to be only used, it says in verse 13, that they are to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. And so that word vengeance there is, is implying this is repayment for a prior wrong. This isn't something new. This is, this is in response to something that has happened before. Okay? And what's amazing here, what I, what I think we, we can easily miss, is that the weight of the Persian Empire is now authorizing the sanctions of God's covenant. Genesis 12, verse 3, God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. God is actually carrying out the sanctions of his covenant via the, the Jewish people by edict of Persia. That's amazing how God worked in that way. And so he's working this out, in essence, in what is a holy war against the enemies of God's people. But as you read through that edict and read through what was written, there's a snag that I think hits our modern ears. And that's that this edict included women and children. What's up with that? <laughs> like, what's the deal with including women and children? Why include non-combatants? Well, Ian Duguid um, put it better than I could here, so I'm going to read what he wrote. He said, In holy war, 
The Israelites acted as the agents of God's righteous judgment against sinners. At Jericho and certain other cities during the conquest of Canaan, they were instructed to destroy the city and to kill all its inhabitants outright. They functioned as a kind of human equivalent to the fire and brimstone from heaven that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, along with all of its residents, young and old, or the flood of Noah's day, which wiped out an entire generation of humanity. In all of these cases, the people were not destroyed because they happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, but because they were sinners steadfastly opposed to God. The sentence for such opposition to God is death, and it applies to all regardless of age or gender. Folks, we have to understand that there is a death sentence on all of humanity. That's the reality. All sinners, all those outside of the covenant of grace with God, there is a death sentence. So, uh, in, in, in this holy war, the, the Jewish people were merely acting as God's agents to impose the, the immediate sanction of that sentence of death. So then maybe we want to ask the question, well, what, why, what about holy war today? Why don't we keep that up? There's plenty of wicked people that, you know, <laughs> why not? Well, one, we're not called to it anymore as the church. And it's not because it was wrong when it happened initially or that it's unworthy of those who follow Christ, nor especially just because our modern ears are, are sensitive to it and, and, and we want to be on the right side of history and not think that way or because it seems cruel and barbaric. The reason is we live in different times now. Not that we live in the 21st century, but that we live in a different period in the history of redemption. Okay, we live post-Christ. Matugut again said, we live in the era of the outpouring of grace in which we fight with spiritual weapons to bring the gospel to the nations, defeating God's enemies by seeing them graciously transformed into his friends. Now we fight with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which instead of turning live foes into dead corpses, can transform dead sinners into live saints. I love that line. Now we wrestle in prayer, seeking God's enlivening work in the hearts and souls of our friends and neighbors. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, in the lives of our friends and neighbors, we're praying, Lord, would you change their hearts? Would you turn that dead corpse into a live saint? Would you transform their heart? So when we read of an action like this in, in Scripture, it should actually show us the rebellion, the reality of rebellion against God and the re reality that there is a sentence of death on all sinners. But it should also show us now how merciful and gracious and slow to anger God is, even then, and, and how He pours out His grace and freely offers the gospel to all who would repent and believe. And, and I want you to look at the rest of this chapter. Look at verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. 
And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So I love this section because, one, Mordecai comes out clothed in royal robes. There's victory in the air. And after this edict that now Mordecai and Esther had sent out to to the whole provinces, to all of the empire, what happened? It says the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. There was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. What a reversal from what we saw in chapter 4 when they first heard the edict of Haman. There was weeping and mourning and fasting. There was distress. Now there's light and gladness and joy and honor. But not only that, look at that last line. Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. Now, I honestly don't know what that means completely, okay? But it sure seems to mean that some people saw what God had done, even though God's not mentioned in this book. They saw what God has done. Fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. Fear of the God of the Jews had fallen upon them, and they're like, I want to be with those people because they have a great God. This God can turn the heart of the king of Persia. The people saw the power of God. But then comes the actual resolution from this new edict. Verse 1 of chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, I just love all these clauses, clause upon clause upon clause, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. This is the only suspense left in this book, is those like four clauses before the reverse occurred. The tables were turned on the enemies of God's people. And so let's continue to read on. Verse 2, the Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed all these 10 sons of Haman. I'm not going to read those names. The son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. You can so clearly see the hand of God here. The fear of the Jews, the fear of Mordecai had fallen on the people. That, folks, is not the work of Mordecai or the work of Esther. That is the work of God. None of this happened by chance. And the the, the Jewish people then, in response to this edict, struck down the enemies of God that day throughout the country and the capital. The the sons of of Haman, they they destroyed, uh, they, they, they... killed the, those who are even just designated as the enemies of God. Haman, remember, the Agagite. He was an Amalekite, and his sons were too. And then further, look down at verse 11. 
That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, here we have the king hearing what the Jews have done, right? And one commentator put it this way. He said, Like the aristocratic sociopath he has shown himself to be, he's far from distressed at the carnage among his citizenry. In fact, he's quite impressed. 500 slain in Susa, you say? Jolly good show. Let's see what they can do elsewhere. And almost by way of reward, it seems, all unsolicited this time, he invites another unconditional, unlimited request from Esther. What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled." We continue to see this king, and you're like, I'm glad I don't live under that king, for one. He is a bit of a sociopath. But then comes this asking for another day by Esther to keep up the killing. Now, what is, what's the deal with that? You know, a number of people actually see this, and and many commentators I read see this as a, as a, as a huge mark, um, uh, a bruise on Esther's character, so to speak. But honestly, I don't think they understand the nature of holy war and the nature of the rebellion of man against God. And the fact that the Jewish people here, though though it's not explicitly laid out, they're fulfilling what Saul and the Jewish people before had failed to do. Saul had failed to obey the Lord in destroying the Amalekites. And one of the ways that we see this is the the edict that they gave, it, it basically was a mirror image of what Haman said, and it talked about you could take the plunder. But in multiple places in our text, it says they didn't touch the plunder. Why? Well, because in the edict, in the command that was given to Saul was to destroy the Amalekites and to take none of the spoil. And so when the prophet came and heard, heard the bleeding of the, the, the sheep, he's like, Saul, what's up with this, dude? And he says, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. They're actually obeying the command of the Lord in, in what they're doing to, to fully destroy the Amalekites. The Jews in Esther's day, were const- were, were, they were consciously seeking to complete the call of God to destroy these enemies of God's people, carrying out a decree of judgment from God upon his enemies. So this wasn't bloodlust by Esther. This wasn't uh, an, an idea of, I, I'm just going after them. I, hey, I got it. The king's really happy. I'll just, I'll just go for some more. She's consciously thinking, this is us completing the call that God has that Saul had failed to do. 
And then look at verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, got relief from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day, excuse me, of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. So in many ways, the business is now complete. It's it's done. The Jews were safe. But this isn't the end yet. This isn't the end. Because there's a celebration to be had. There's sitting and and enjoying what has been given. So now we're going to read through much of chapter 9 here. Look at 9 verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor." So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that the days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So, in many ways, this is why the book was written. To lay out why do the Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim. And so this is the institution of the Feast of Purim. It, 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 in many ways, it naturally occurred because we naturally know that, that something, is, it, something great in, in many ways is not done until there's, there's praise, until there's thanksgiving for it. It's the consummation of what is done. It's the consummation of enjoyment. It's the consummation of relief. Okay? If you love something, if you receive something as a gift from someone, and you're just like, thanks, thanks. Like, there's, there's, there's nothing to that. The, the, the consummation of receiving that is, thank you so much. This is wonderful. And, and there's praise. There's rejoicing in it. And so that's the, the natural end of this. But in keeping with this book, There's absolutely no reference to giving praise or thanks to God himself, is there? It almost seems as though the celebration could have been like what Thanksgiving or Christmas has become for for so many people. 
just an excuse to get off work and to eat a lot of food and to watch football. And that's it. It's merely an excuse for that without any reference to God. But Purim is actually a time to celebrate and feast because of God's grace, because of His grace and the rest of salvation that His grace gives from His enemies. It's rest from the enemies of God's people. In that day, that rest was very, very clearly from physical enemies, wasn't it? From those who had this edict that they were going to go out and destroy, commit genocide against the Jewish people. But today, if we think about this, we rest more now because of salvation from sin. And though we have the big holidays, things again like Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter, where we celebrate God's faithfulness, The truth is, we rest and celebrate in a rhythm that's a lot faster every single Sunday. That's what we come together to do. It's here that we rehearse, that that we're reminded of the redemptive rest that has been won for God's people by Christ. That's what we come together to do. It's not just to see people. It's not just to sing. It's not just to hear God's Word. But it's actually to celebrate God and His grace for giving us rest from our sin. It's a way to celebrate His grace. This is a time then also to look forward to the ultimate rest from death, from our last enemy that will be destroyed, that will have no power over His people. When everything sad becomes untrue, this is a chance for us to do that. So Sundays are celebrations of God's grace and His goodness, of His continued providence, even when, when in our other six days of the week, even in those days when we struggle to see God at work at all, and maybe we don't even mention His name once. Maybe we don't even think about him. Maybe we don't ever crack open our scriptures. But yet we come Sunday and we're reminded to celebrate all that God has done and to rest in that. We so desperately need this. We're designed for this, for this rhythm of work and rest. And to see that we have been given rest from our sin, from our enemies, because of God's grace. This is our constant reminder. This is what draws us back week in and week out. This is why it's important for us, you know, do everything we can to be here together because it's so needed. You go one, two, three, four weeks without it, and I dare say you will more and more forget that God is at work in the day-to-day. We need this reminder. So, let's wrap up this book. Look at verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hashuerus, and words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim 
and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of his honor, of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all the people. Now, doesn't that seem like a great way to end? The king imposed a tax on all the people. <laughs> Why end it like that? It seems really odd, but you know what it tells us? Is that in this lifetime, our external circumstances are rarely going to change. It doesn't matter who's in the White House necessarily, or who's our congressman, or who's our senator. I'm not saying it doesn't matter who you vote for, but get, listen to what I'm saying here. Is our external circumstances often don't change. Yet God is still at work. He is still at work. And we are still to celebrate His work. We are still to celebrate Him. We are still to rest we're to celebrate that, that He did everything to give us rest. We're to have eyes open to God's hand in everything. I started off reading from John Newton. He continued in his letter about the whole fact that without an eye to God, everything is chaos. And he wrote this. He said, But with the Scripture key, all is plain, all is instructive, then I see verily there is a God who governs the earth, who pours contempt upon princes, takes the wise in their own craftiness, overrules the wrath and pride of man to bring his own designs to pass, and restrains all that is not necessary to that end, blasting the best concerted enterprises at one time, by means apparently slight, hmm, and altogether unexpected, and at other times producing the most important events from instruments and circumstances which are at first thought too feeble and too trivial to deserve notice. Folks, those kind of things happen every day. It happened at a stable in Bethlehem that is too trivial for most of the world to ever take notice. It happened on a cross that seemed too feeble to actually bring about a victory. Nothing seemed more feeble than that. And yet in that work of God, God's people are set free from their sin. They're set free and they can, we, we can rest. Folks, that's the power of our God at work. That's the power of the cross. And this that reality affects us every single moment of every single day. And the days of smooth sailing where, yeah, you know, we don't feel like there's an enemy. We, we think things are going well. It's sunny, the wind is at our back, and it's just a relaxing day. But then there's days of absolute turbulence, and the waves are crashing over everything we have. God is still at work. So let's let, as we finish this book, let the message of Esther bring us comfort and hope.
that even when our eyes don't consciously see God at work, He is. His hand of providence has not stopped. He is not he, he's not the God of the deist who this earth is just a top that he just started spinning, put his hands off and said, whatever. He's the God at work who knows every hair on your head. And our only comfort in life and in death is that we know him and more importantly, that he knows us. And that he has given his son for us that we could know life. And at the same time, this, this message of this book and even the way this book ends and we look out at our world, let it increase our longing for that day of ultimate rest. For the day when we don't have to worry about what king or president there is. Because the King of kings and Lord of lords will reign supreme over everything undisputed in perfect glory. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in a book that doesn't mention your name once, you are all over the pages, and it is so encouraging to us. Lord, direct our hearts and our minds, all of us to you. May we be people who rest in your goodness, rest in the fact that you have saved your people from sin. And for those who don't know you, Lord, may they turn to you in faith and repentance and experience that same rest. Increase that experience of that in each of us today. Lord, do that for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen.